All right, today we're going to be talking, moving on in the passage. Last week we saw Paul praying for those that were far from God. And today we're going to be talking about evangelism. We're going to be talking about actually relating to those who are far from God and sharing the good news. This is not a super popular topic. Um, There are a few things in in when I preach that are going to create, uh, I think, um, a little bit of dread. Like I can preach about prayer and I know it's always going to produce guilt. Because very few people are like, oh, I totally pray enough, right? We all have that sense of like, man, I just don't pray enough, I'm, right? And whenever I bring up evangelism, people get a little hinky, right? It's just like, I don't know, that's weird and hard. And I know I'm supposed to do it, but I don't really want to do it. And, you know, I tried once and it didn't go well. And I don't want to experience that again, right? It's awkward. I feel exposed, right? Jim Gafkin has a great bit where he starts, starts off by saying, I'd like everyone here to be comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ, right? I mean, it is just a great way to make things awkward quickly, right? Does anything make you more uncomfortable than a stranger coming up to you and asking, can I talk to you about Jesus? Yeah, I'd like you not, right? Um, and it's true, even as a follower of Christ, I get a little weirded out at times when people are super aggressive in public with their with their, you know, you got a guy outside the courthouse with his speaker and his signs, and, and, and I get a little weirded out, right? Um, so here's the thing. Uh, my goal for today, I want to talk about evangelism. I want to talk about what it is. Uh, I want to talk about why we do it. And I want to talk a little bit about how we do it in a way that makes it real and not weird. Because evangelism is, in its simplest form, just sharing good news with people we love, okay? So let's take a look at our text. We're in Romans 10 this morning. Romans 10, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 946, page 946, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17, page 946 in our Bibles. All right, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, um, so the title of my sermon is Beautiful Feet. Uh, Weird, uh, weird title, uh, kind of a weird reference, right? Um, I think we get used to seeing weird things in the Bible, and so we're like, oh yeah, of course their feet are beautiful, right? They're beautiful feet, right? Last week, um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why this is important. Last week, we saw how everyone is really on the same quest, right? When Paul was talking about the people who were persecuting him, resisting the gospel, uh, not coming to faith, the people that his heart was breaking for, he, he, he talked about how um, really they wanted the same thing everyone else wants. And this is not a religious thing. This is a human thing. We are all on a quest for the fullness of life. We're all on a quest to experience the blessing of life. We all want the same things, security, significance, approval, rest. We want a sense of being worthy of love. We want a sense that we're important, that we're valuable. We want a sense of security and safety. We want a sense of of deep rest and contentment. We, We are all pursuing the same things. Now, we may be chasing different things to get us there, but it's the end goal that we're all pursuing, right? And you got people that are doing it religiously, right? They're, they're trying to get there by, by doing all the right things, going to church every time the doors are open, being super moral, um, you know, denying themselves, doing good works, and hopefully trying to do more works than bad works. you got other people that are doing it irreligiously, right? They're trying to get there through the accumulation of money or, or, or status or promotions or experiences, right? Some people are experience junkies. They're just trying to get as many experiences as possible, and they just can't wait to get the next one because they hope that the next one is the one that will actually actually deliver them into a more permanent experience of what they're pursuing. And the way Paul put this is that we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to ascend into heaven to take hold of the blessing of God. 
We're all trying to descend into the abyss in order to retrieve what was lost or fix what was broken, heal what was hurt or raise what has died. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're just doing it in different ways. And Paul says, of course, the great tragedy is that we can't do it, right? That is the testimony of human history, right? I mean, it's like no secret at all, right? We all chase fame, but we already know what happens to all famous people. They go crazy, right? We all chase money, but we know what happens to people who have a lot of money. They just are very unhappy people with a lot of money, right? We, we already know what happens when we get the next vacation. It's really good for a little while, and then it's not. And weirdly enough, the next time you go to the same place, it's like diminishing returns. It's like, well, I really enjoyed this last time, but I only kind of enjoyed it this time, right? We keep chasing the same stuff, asking us to give it what it cannot give, but we keep doing it because we have no other way to get there. We're hamsters running on our little wheel, exhausting ourselves. The good news is that God has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. God came down from heaven. We don't have to climb our way up to Him. He took hold of the blessing of God and brought it to us. He became man so that He might become one of us to meet us where we are. And He was on a mission to descend into the abyss. He died so that he could fix what was broken, retrieve what was lost, heal what was hurt, and raise what had been killed. And when he rose from the dead, he invites us to receive what we can never earn, the blessing of his grace, that we can once again have a right relationship with God, the source of life, the one we are all pursuing, whether or not we understand it or admit it. We were created for God, we crave God, and we chase God. We just chase Him in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. And Paul ended last week in verse 13 by saying, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. It is a universal invitation. Right? God doesn't favor religious people over irreligious people. He doesn't favor nice people over mean people. He doesn't favor people that do the good things and avoid the bad things and have the right heritage or history or ethnicity. It is a universal invitation to receive the gift of righteousness for all who believe. Then he goes into a series of rhetorical questions that we saw this morning, right? Right? Everyone can be saved, but how can they call on Him in whom they haven't believed? How can they believe in Him without hearing about Him? How can they hear without a preacher? And y'all are like, well, good thing you're here, Steve. You're the preacher, right? Some people, sometimes people call me that like old school. It's like, hey, preacher. Well, hey, uh, sometimes I preach. That's not who I am. Um, you know, people call me pastor, which I don't mind. I really don't mind. I'm, I'm cool with it. But, but here's the thing. The word preach, we, in, in Western culture, when we hear preacher, we tend to think vocationally of somebody who does this for a living, right? I get paid to do it, therefore I'm the preacher. And everybody else just gets to check out because you're paying me to do it. Um, that's not what's happening here. The word preach literally just means to proclaim or to speak. How can they hear unless someone tells them? That's what he's saying. He's not saying unless there's a special class of vocational followers of Christ who are paid to do this. He's saying the most obvious thing in the world. How can you hear a message if somebody doesn't tell you? How can you receive a message, believe that message, trust in the person at the heart of that message unless someone verbally tells you that message, right? When he says preacher, don't hear vocational pastorate hear somebody who speaks because that's caruso the greek word just simply means somebody who speaks somebody who proclaims something right so how can they hear without a preacher and how can a preacher be believed if they aren't sent we're going to talk about that they do have to be sent um so we'll talk about that and then he quotes isaiah 52 7 our weird verse right how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news and i love that right why doesn't he say how beautiful is the message or how beautiful is the face or how beautiful are the feet? Well, let's talk about this stuff about the beautiful feet. Um, the ancient world wasn't more obsessed with the feet than we are. It, it, it has a specific historical 
context that I think will be helpful for us to understand. Isaiah, Paul is quoting Isaiah when he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 7. And in Isaiah 52, Isaiah is prophetically speaking to Israel who is exiled to Babylon. They hadn't been exiled yet. Uh, when Isaiah wrote, he was prophetically speaking to them once they would be. And he was saying um, that there was going to be a moment of a beautiful moment in which they were going to hear a message they needed to hear. So Israel was going to be exiled. Um, this is an ancient practice that still continued today, right? If you followed the news of the Russian war in Ukraine, you know that they are forcefully relocating people. Um, as they move into new areas, they basically kidnap them ship them off into uh, eastern Russia, Siberia. Um, that is a form of exile. It is a way of trying to erase national identity, uh, where you take people from a specific region, you take their land, you relocate them so that they lose their home, they lose their space, they lose their sense of cultural connectedness to one another, and they become integrated into this new nation. That's what happened to Israel. Babylon came in, took Israel, and then relocated them into, they exiled them into Babylon. As you can imagine, this is deeply painful and disorienting, right? Can you imagine if, if Canada came down and kicked you out of your house? You're like, no, they're too nice. Well, I don't know, maybe they're not, all right? And, and seriously, like they, they took you. If you're lucky, you get to go with your family, but they relocate you to Quebec and force you to speak French. And so you're, you're having to learn a new language. You're in a totally new con cultural context. You're not around anybody who knows who you are, where you're from. Um, you're watching your children lose their entire sense of family identity, cultural identity, all the things that made you you all the things that were so dear to you. You can imagine how disorienting, how painful that situation would be. That's what happened in Israel when, when they were exiled to Babylon. Now, can you imagine somebody is sent to you, a herald, with the good news that you get to go home, with the good news that you've been saved, that the exile is over, and you get to return. Now, during ancient Israel's time, of course, there were no cell phones. There was no satellite communication. For someone to bring the news, they literally had to bring the news. The battles that were waged were often very far from the people who received the benefit of the battles. And so after the battle was won, they would send a herald. The herald was usually somebody who was deeply connected to the community they were being sent to. They went with a lot of urgency. And they had to run. It was the only way, unless they had other form of transport. And, and so they would arrive. And often there was so much urgency because as soon as the battle was won, they wanted the people who received the benefit to know about it. And so they would send someone immediately. And they would arrive and, 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 and sometimes they had sandals, sometimes they didn't. And they would arrive and their feet would be caked with dirt and blood from the arduous running and journey. But those feet communicated love. Those feet communicated salvation. Those feet communicated deliverance. And as mangled and as bloody as they were, they were beautiful feet. Because those feet brought a message of deliverance. It was good news brought by love. When Paul quotes Isaiah 52, that's the image that would come to mind, right? Remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and, and they would have understood the context of Isaiah 52. In fact, let me just throw the verse up here, because I, Isaiah 52 is a long, beautiful song about salvation, about Israel being delivered out of the captivity in Babylon. In Isaiah 52, 7, it says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Now, the word peace here is that Hebrew word shalom. We're not talking about just the cessation of conflict. 
we're talking about the presence of blessing. When God speaks about shalom, when we talk about shalom, we're, we're not talking about simply being delivered from, from being in fights. We're now being talk, talking about being delivered into the fullness and flourishing of life. We're at peace. We're content. We're full. We're joyful. We're secure. We're significant. We're loved. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings news, good news, who publishes shalom, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, I recommend you go back to Isaiah 52 sometime this week. Read it. Um, it is a beautiful song of redemption, and it leads right into Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the most poignant Old Testament prophetic passages telling us about Jesus. It's a chapter that's all about the suffering servant, the one who paid the price so that we could be saved, the one who paid the price so that we could be delivered, the man of sorrows pierced for our transgression, our chastisement fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 are one of the clearest proclamations of the gospel in the Old Testament prophesying not just the life of Jesus, but even the manner of his death, that he would be pierced, that he would, that he would um, be in the tomb of a rich man, that he would, I mean, it's just beautiful. You just need to go, you need to go read it, right? But do you see why the feet would be beautiful? The feet that would bring this news, the feet that, that, that labored so that you could receive the news of deliverance. It's because the good news is brought in love. The messenger, the herald, came because they were sent with an important message of victory. And that's what the gospel is, right? We talk about the gospel. It's such a church word, gospel. It comes from the Greek word evangelion, which literally means good news, right? But it's a very specific kind of good news. You don't talk about the, uh, I don't know, the evangelion of a great burger, okay? I mean, it is good news that somebody can make a great burger, yeah? Some of you are getting some really good lunch today, and you're looking forward to it. That's good news, right? But it's not evangelion. Evangelion is a, a Greek word that specifically talks about the good news that comes from the victory of a battle and is sent with a herald. It is something to be proclaimed. It is, it is a message of deliverance. It is a message of salvation. It is a, a message of shalom to people who are in desperate need of shalom, evangelion, right? The herald came because they loved the people they were sent to, and they were sent. A herald never carries a message on his own. A herald is sent by one with greater authority than he to carry a message um, that will deliver and be a blessing to those that receive it, right? So the herald receives the message, does the work to bring the message, and then proclaims the message, actually speaks the message to those who need to hear it. Let me just pause for a minute. Follower of Christ, what were the beautiful feet that brought the good news to your life? Who had the beautiful feet that modeled the love of God and spoke to you about the love of God? Because you didn't become a follower of Christ without hearing about the love of God. For me, it was a 59-year-old freshman, my freshman year in college. He was weird as all get out, and I loved him. He, dude wore a, a bow tie and a shock of white hair, looked like Orville Redenbacher. I was in a, I was in a, in a dark place, um, confused and angry and lost. In Dubuque, Iowa, I was raised in California, I was in uh, a dark place. And this guy just befriended me. I mean, that was it, man. He befriended me. He sat with me. He talked with me. I, we had some classes together, weirdly. I was 17. He was 59. And after a while, I came to trust him. And then we started talking about spiritual things. And I asked him what his favorite book in the Bible was. And he said the book of Hebrews. So I sat down that night and read it. And I became a believer. Beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. What were the beautiful feet that brought 
the message of good news to you. See, the herald's job is to deliver the good news, right? Now, here's the thing. His job is to deliver the good news, not to take responsibility for how it's received. Does that make sense? The herald can't control how the good news is received. He can only control whether or not he faithfully delivers it. So, if you look in the very next verse of of, um, verse 16, so you got the, the herald who comes and preaches, who is sent, who delivers the good news, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Paul goes a little bit farther in the passage in Isaiah 53, verse 1, and quotes this, who has believed what he has heard from us. Um, There are many who are living in exile who aren't interested in the message that they get to go home because they're still convinced they can get there on their own. They're not interested in hearing about the God who descended into heaven to bring God's blessing, who descended into the abyss to solve their greatest problem, pay their greatest debt, and deliver them their greatest blessing. Why? Because they're still committed to their plan to climb up into heaven, to take hold of the fullness of life, to descend into the abyss to solve their greatest problems. Not everyone is going to receive the message. Not everyone is going to believe. You need to understand that's actually normal. It was predicted. It was Isaiah's experience. It was Paul's experience. It's part of the process. I know many people who have tried to share their faith, but it didn't go well. Like they they worked up great courage and took a great risk to share their faith in in a costly situation with somebody who was dear to them, whether it was a good friend or a relative. And the conversation felt ridiculously awkward and, and, you know, there was no immediate fruit and the Spirit of God didn't descend like a dove from heaven or a light like a fire on their head. And, and, and you know, the, the, the weirdness of it was so repellent that they were like, you know, I tried that. I guess I'm probably not going to do that again. <laughs> Been there, done that. That one's not my gift, right? A lot of gifts. Maybe my gift is service quietly in the back where I never have to say anything. You know, maybe my gift is, but clearly not evangelism because it didn't go well. And if I don't have the gift, then obviously I don't have the responsibility. Um, Listen, not everyone's going to respond well. Not everyone is going to respond. I mean, unless you're a better preacher than Jesus himself, Isaiah the prophet, Paul the apostle, you need to know that not everyone's going to want the message you've been commissioned to deliver, but that doesn't change the commission, nor does it change the good news, that it is still good news. It is, in fact, the very news that people need, and it would be such a rich and powerful blessing to them should they receive it, or as Paul puts it, if they would just obey the gospel instead of submitting themselves to their own self-salvation projects. So listen, I understand it can be discouraging. I know it can be intimidating. I know it can be hard. It can make you feel like a failure. It can expose your shame and make you feel like you've just done something wrong or maybe you are something wrong. But listen, both Isaiah and Paul tell us that's not on us. The herald's responsibility is to deliver the message, not take responsibility for how it is received. We can't stop proclaiming the message because some people don't receive the message, right? He goes on in the very next verse, right? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You're a herald. Jesus sent you, right? He sent all of us. That's the thing. Whether you're doing it for, for, like, I get to do it for my living, which is a huge privilege. Everybody else gets to do it because it's their life, right? The Great Commission 
wasn't given to pastors. It was given to believers. Anybody who's believed in Christ is commissioned by Christ to be a herald of Christ. Anybody who has received the good news is then sent out with that good news to share it with others, to be disciples who make disciples. In fact, Jesus tells us it's why we're still here. He came the first time and he's coming again. What is he waiting for? He's waiting in his grace for others to receive his grace. And a hundred years from now, it is not going to matter how much money you earned or how many vacations you took or, or how much status you had or, 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 or how people admired you. Or it, none of that is going to matter. What's going to matter is the stuff that's eternal and your commission follower of Christ is eternal. You will spend the rest of your life being a disciple. That's your identity. That's who you are, not just something you do. You will grow in your love for God and you will grow in your love for others and you will share with them the grace you have received in Christ. So we share because we're commissioned to, we're called to, we're sent to, we share. Without taking responsibility for how it's received, we, we share because it's love. Because people can only come to faith if they hear the message that's been entrusted to us. There is a, uh, a proverb, uh, a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 about a farmer sowing seed. Yeah, you guys may be familiar with it. Jesus says, there's a sower sowing seed, and, and he casts his seed, and, and he ends up talking about three different soils that you can cast your seed on. The first is uh, the hard soil of the path, and, and the seed landed on the hardened soil, and it couldn't penetrate because of the hardness of the soil, and so the birds of the air came and devoured it, right? There's the rocky soil that, that the seed would, would, would take root in, but because it was rocky, the, root, the roots couldn't go deep, and as a result, it would sprout up quickly. But when the heat of the day came and things became difficult, the plant would, would die. And then there was the good soil, the good soil where the seed could go and, and germinate and, and, and it would produce a crop 30, 60, 100-fold, Right? Obviously, Jesus told this story not trying to give agrarian instructions. He wasn't telling us how to plant a garden. He was talking about speaking the truth. He was talking about evangelism. He was talking about sharing grace verbally with others. He was, he was talking about proclaiming the kingdom and the results that we could expect. Here's the irony, though, you know. We spend a lot of time, I don't know if you've heard this, this passage preached before or you read it. We spend a lot of time thinking about the soil. The three different kinds of soil. I've heard sermons, what kind of soil are you, right? I want to know about the, the farmer. What kind of idiot buys seed and throws it everywhere? That's irresponsible, right? You till the soil to plant the seed. Not this guy. Man, he buys the seed and he's just throwing it everywhere. He's willy-nilly. He's irresponsible. He's reckless. He's not strategic. I think the message may be more about the farmer than the soil. I think the message is pretty clear. We are called to spread the seed, regardless of the soil. Because we don't know what the soil is, we cannot predetermine where the message is going to be effective. We do not have the ability to assess someone's heart or the work of the Spirit in their heart to prepare them to receive the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ. We need to be indiscriminate. We need to be wasteful. We need to share the good news of the victory of Jesus whenever and wherever we have the opportunity. We need to be like the farmer, not trying to predetermine which soil is which, but simply proclaiming, as a herald should, the good news that there is victory 
and we can receive the benefit. So, let's come back around to our questions. What is evangelism? Why do we evangelize? And how can we do it without being super weird? Okay? So what is evangelism? Well, first of all, evangelism is simply heralding the victory of Jesus. Right? Evangelism is sharing the good news of Jesus with others. In relationship and in conversation. Evangelism is to publish, to proclaim, to speak, to herald the evangelion, the good news that our Savior went to war with our greatest enemy, death and sin, and he won. He killed death, and he defeated sin. He overcame what we couldn't. He brought God's blessing to us. And anyone can receive that blessing if they will simply show up with their need instead of their pride. If they will come to trust Him instead of trust themselves. To stop trying to ascend into heaven to take hold of the blessing of God or descend into the abyss to fix what we've broken, recover what we've lost, erase what has died. If we'll simply come to trust Him. Evangelism. Evangelism is the activity of those who have received the message of grace. It's not a special commission for a few. It's not a special calling for professionals. It's not pastors or missionaries or, or specially gifted, unique people that are called to be heralds. Anyone who has received the message is then sent out with the message. It's that simple. It's why you're still here. It's why you're still alive. It is the sacred calling of your life. You have been sent, follower of Christ, by Christ, with the message of Christ. And it is the responsibility of everyone who has someone with whom they can share the message. So how should we evangelize, right? How? Well, I think we should be both relational and conversational. I think we should be both relational and conversational. It is a relational message after all, right? The message is that God relates to us. He loves us. He came to us. God didn't simply deliver us a set of truths. He didn't publish for us a book without embodying that book. He didn't simply give us the written word without becoming the living word. It is a relational message of love. God wants us to respond to His love in love. It is a relational message that needs to be delivered relationally. A message of love needs to be delivered in love, right? A, relation, a message of love shouldn't simply be, shouldn't be talked about in an abstract sense. It should be embodied in the spirit in which it is sent. It is relational. But it's also conversational, y'all. It's a message. It is something that is to be spoken and shared, right? There is, even though you know, Jesus came as the living word, he also gave us the written word right? It is, it is a message to be understood, and it is a message that must be spoken. So evangelistic training over the last 40 years, I, you know, I, I became a believer in the late 80s, and man, I've seen the pendulum swing. When I became a believer in the late 80s, uh, evangelistic training was, was super focused on, on propositional truths, and um, uh, trying to, to get to a specific outcome, right? So like when I became a believer in the 80s, um, man, I was, I was given tools like, I don't know, the Romans Road, familiar with that? Romans Road, it's four verses out of the book of Romans, right? I can, you're like, dude, why don't you take the Romans Road? We've been done already. I know, right? We could have covered the Romans Road in one day and we'd already be out of the book of Romans. Uh, the Romans Road, four verses taken completely out of context that are supposed to simply summarize everything God has done. Uh, not saying there's anything wrong with it. You can use the Romans road in an effective way. It can be a good thing. It can also be a horrible thing. When you simply summarize it to four propositional truths 
that you're saying to somebody you must give mental assent to, completely devoid from actual response of faith, relationship with God, or relationship with others. But that was the way evangelism was focused in the late 80s. It was very propositional. It was like, called it drive-by evangelism, right? You just went by and you kind of just shot these truths at, at people, right? I, I had a, a guy who, who was a big evangelist, right? And he would go out into public spaces and set up a booth and he would ask people a series of yes or no questions. And at the end of the day, he would be like, I had 37 converts today. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, I, I walked 37 people through this process and at the end of that process, I asked them this question, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart, yes or no? I got 37 yeses. Did, did they understand the message? Are they, do they, are you in relationship with them? Do they know God? Is it, it was purely about getting the right information into their head and getting the right response. In fact, I was told, you're not fishing unless you get the fish in the boat. Otherwise, you're just floating. You need to close the deal right? That was what evangelism was all about, closing the deal. It was about giving a set of propositional truths and then getting a very specific response, asking Jesus into your heart, committing your life to Christ, making Jesus Lord of your life, whatever the easy tagline that was that came at the end of the evangelistic uh, presentation. And as long as you can get them to do that thing, you could count them in your numbers. And for whatever reason, evangelists love to count. Listen, y'all, it Drive-by evangelism. I'm not saying God doesn't work in it. I know, I know a guy who literally, like he was walking across campus and somebody walked up to him and did that very thing. Like, you know, if you were to die today and you came to the gates of heaven and God said, why should I let you in? What would you answer? He's like, I, I don't know. Well, this is the right answer. And the guy's like, okay. And literally he became a believer, okay? So it happens. I'm not saying that God doesn't ever work through that stuff, right? God can work through anything. It's one of the beautiful messages of Scripture, and it gives me a lot of hope because it means it can even work through me, right? But, but here's the challenge. A lot of damage came from that too, right? People go into restaurants, and, and at the end of the meal, instead of leaving a tip, they leave a chick tract. It looked like a tip. It was a fake $10 bill. You open it up, oh, you can have eternal life, right? It's like, oh, hey, thanks. Here's the thing. When we treat people in that way, we make them feel like projects instead of people. Something happened in Christianity during that period of time. Christians stopped having the ability to actually have friendships with unbelievers because unbelievers became projects instead of people. They befriended unbelievers with the purpose of converting them, and if they didn't convert, they cut off the relationship and moved on. Y'all, that's not love. That's not embodying the love that is at the heart of the message of the gospel. God loves people regardless of how they respond to Him. He demonstrated His love by actually dying for us while we were still enemies. He gives His love regardless of the response, but always with an invitation to respond. We need to embody that same kind of love. We need to stop seeing people as projects and actually relate to them as people. We need to love people, not simply see them as, as uh, our spiritual homework for the week. So that period of time, man, I saw it happen. It turned people into projects, killed friendships, um, and, and it left people feeling like Christians were just weird multi-level marketers. Leveraging all of their personal relationships to try to get some sort of heavenly reward at the end of the day. And as long as you were part of their pyramid scheme, you could stay friends with them. But as soon as you stepped out of it, they just didn't really have a whole lot of time for you. So in the 2000s, things changed. So I saw this happen. In the 2000s, we had the birth of something called the missional movement. So the missional movement was all about building relationships. It was a pendulum swing from the propositional uh, form of evangelism of, of the, the 80s and and 90s, and, and, and now it became super, super relational. It was all about building friendships and hanging out with, with unbelievers, right? I had, I had a lot of conversations with church planters during these early years, and you had a lot of guys eating barbecue and drinking IPAs with their neighbor, right? They were just, they were just building a lot of relationships. They were making friends with everybody in town. There was a whole lot of hanging out. 
and not a whole lot of talking about Jesus. They built a lot of relationships and they tried to embody the love of God, but they didn't talk about the love of God. They just kept kind of waiting. Thinking, man, it might be awkward or weird. They, they may not like me anymore. I want, to be their, I want to be their cool Christian friend, not the awkward one. I don't want to be like those guys. So the pendulum swung, but it swung too far. It swung to the point where, where people were, were um, quoting silly things like preach the gospel and only if necessary use words. Right? That's attributed to Francis Assisi. I don't know that he actually ever said it. And I think in some context, that might be good advice. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, you can't preach the gospel without preaching. You can't proclaim the truth without proclaiming the truth. You can't actually love people without telling them about the love of God. There's a quote in your bulletin from J.D. Greer. I love it. It says, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. It's like saying, tell me your phone number, and if necessary, use digits. It's necessary. Unless you tell me your phone number, I can't call you. And unless you tell people about the person of Jesus and the work of God, they can't hear and believe. Yes, foster genuine friendships. I'm all for that. Missional living, absolutely. Hang out with your neighbor. Eat barbecue, right? Watch some movies with them. Stop being weirdly religious and, and separate yourself, right? Like, like be part of your community. Know people, love people. Like, actually know them and love them. Like, build genuine relationships, right? But let me ask you something. Can you genuinely love someone without sharing with them the most important thing about you? Can you love someone without sharing with them your greatest hope and the foundation of your greatest joy? That's not love. That's fear self-protection, and shame. Love calls us to speak about what we love. So finally, be a herald, right? How, how are we going to evangelize without making it weird? Be a herald and trust God with the results. Um, how do we do it without making it weird? Let me just give you my best advice. First of all, um, Evangelism is most effective when you're sharing your joy and not just speaking of truth. Does that make sense? Evangelism is, is most effective when you're sharing your joy and not just speaking of truth. See, I don't know if you realize this, everybody's an evangelist. Because we always talk about what gives us joy. You're just not always an evangelist of Jesus, right? You might be an evangelist of your favorite football team or, or baseball team. You might be an evangelist of, of, of your favorite hobby. You might be an evangelist of, I don't know, um, oil, weird oils, soaps. You might be, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, whatever it is gives you joy, right? You're going to talk about what gives you joy. Are you not? The most effective evangelism comes when we're sharing the truth about Jesus from a place of deep joy and not just a place of obligation, duty, fear, or manipulation. See, that's what makes it manipulative and that's what makes it weird. When we're actually speaking from a place of joy and sharing our joy, it feels like love. And people may not taste that joy, they may not receive that joy, but they'll appreciate that joy because they themselves crave that kind of joy. They may not say, they like, they, and I've had those conversations where I'm like, I look at somebody, I'm like, man, I just need to tell you something. You need Jesus, man. Like, I can't tell you. I've, I, Jesus has met me in situations just like yours in ways I could explain to you. You need Jesus, man. And they're like, yeah, I, 
I get that. I don't know that I'm ready to go where you are, but I'm glad you're there. And I'm like, man, I am too. Now, how can I continue to be a faithful? Make sense? Like, like sharing it from a place of joy instead of simply abstract truth makes it relational. It makes it's an expression of love, right? To be disciples who make disciples, it's not just about pushing out a message. It, it, it's about living that message, which means it is ridiculously important for us to renew our joy, right? We're not going to be effective in sharing our joy if we're not taking joy. We need to be drinking at the fountain if we're going to be inviting others to it. We need to be feasting at the meal if we're going to be telling others to come sit at the table because it's our joy that ignites the message. Now, here's the irony, y'all. I want you to know this. And this is, I think, God designed it this way. Uh, Sometimes I think our joy is diminished because we stop sharing that joy. Our experience of grace is diminished because we stop inviting others to experience that grace. See, grace is given to you never to hold for yourself, but to share it with others. Grace releases its power in transition, right? Grace isn't a treasure you can hoard. It is a treasure you must give away. And the more you give away, the more you get to experience. I think a lot of us have lost our joy and our salvation because we've stopped giving it away. We've stopped inviting people to the table. We've stopped taking steps of faith. We've stopped taking risks. And we've started playing it safe. And we've become selfish and self-centered. So yes, the message is best delivered in joy, but you need to know that you often have to share the message to renew your joy. Secondly, this. um, How do you not make it weird? Don't be afraid of being awkward. Sometimes it's going to be weird. And that's okay. It's just okay right? The goal is not to be cool. The goal is to be faithful. And the goal is to speak and act in love. Let me tell you a final story. Um, When I was a principal back in my previous life, we had a kid that would come around the school. Uh, He wasn't in our school, but he would hang out in our school. He lived somewhere nearby, and and he would vandalize stuff, and he he would just cause mischief. And I saw this kid, and there were people who just wanted to call the police. They they wanted to, to just come down on this kid. And, um, and so I, I was out there skateboarding, as, I was, as was my want, um, after school, because what else do you do as a principal after school but go skateboard? Uh, and I'm skateboarding, this kid comes around, and, and I just strike up a conversation with him. Like, hey, how's it going? And he's like really defensive, and he's like attitude, and he's rude, and, and, and you know, I'm used to working with kids at this point. I'm like, all right, defense mechanisms, a little bit of fear, a little bit of, I'm like, you skateboard? No, I knew he didn't. Um, like, what do you like to do? He's like, I don't know, shoot hoops. I'm like, well, come back after dinner. Let's shoot hoops. I'll open up the gym. He came back. That night we shot hoops. And as we shot hoops, I had a captive audience. <laughs> and I made it weird. I just, I don't know why. I had this sense of urgency. I had this sense of, and so I just, and I wasn't very good at it. This was like, like, I, you know, I think I, I told I, way too much information, way too, but I just told him about Jesus. And I think I started at Genesis and ended in Revelation, right? I mean, we were shooting hoops for a couple hours and I just kept talking and talking. Kept asking him questions, but kept talking and giving him more and giving him more and just Jesus and Jesus and more Jesus and Jesus, right? At the end of the night. You know, I'm like, thanks for hanging out. He's like, thanks for having me. I didn't see him again. He died two weeks later. Like, for real, I'm not making this up. This isn't a pastor story. He died. I don't know whether he believed in Jesus. I know he heard the message of Jesus. I know I had the opportunity, and I absolutely am so thankful that I responded to the prompting and I took advantage of the opportunity and I was willing to make it weird because love isn't afraid of weird. You know what I'm saying? 
Y'all, we have been entrusted with the most powerful message ever given to humankind, the most valuable message ever given to humankind, more valuable than all the money in the world, more valuable than the lotto that you just bought a ticket for and you tried to win, more valuable than, than, than the promotion you're hoping for, more powerful than your next vacation. It can renew the heart and transform human experience. That message carries its own power. It just needs to be delivered like a seed that is put in the ground. It does its own work. You always need to be faithful to deliver. We need to be heralds sharing the truth so that others can be blessed by it. As you're praying, start here. Like some of you are like, man, I'm still just terrified. I don't know how to do it. I don't. That's all right. Start by praying. Ask God who he wants you praying for, who he wants you interceding for, and do it. Pray for them. Set an alarm on your phone. Make a note. Pray for them. And while you're praying for them, start asking God if he's going to give you opportunity to speak to them. Because when the opportunity comes and the Spirit is present, it'll be love. It'll be joy. It might be weird. But it'll be good. I'm going to close this word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this crazy plan is yours. <laughs> Man, you could have published the good news of your victory in so many ways, but you entrusted it to those who have received it. This, this incredible message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this, this message of salvation and deliverance. Man, it is such good news to us. Will you awaken within us, Lord, a desire to share that good news with others? Help us to know who we should be praying for and and, 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 and Lord, not worried about who's going to receive the good news, but who you want us to deliver the good news to. Lord, it's not our job to evaluate the soil. It's our job to simply scatter the seed. I pray for my friends that are like really nervous about this stuff because they hate awkwardness and they're introverts and all that stuff. Spirit, will you just give them the courage to take the first step to pray? Do you stir their hearts to love someone enough to pray for them? faithfully. Lord, will you awaken us to the opportunities that are around us all over the place where, where we can share a word of encouragement, where we can point people to Jesus, where we can simply tap on the door to find out if there's an opportunity for more. Will you, will you make us eager to actually share grace with people who desperately need it? Awaken our hearts to the beauty of this invitation. Awaken our hearts to the power of this message. Awaken our hearts to the honor that is ours to be heralds of the risen Savior. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you work through us. And we pray these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.